A free market uh, economist I read and listen to regularly, a guy named David Bonson, who's a believer, wrote an excellent book last year entitled There's No Free Lunch. His thesis is super straightforward. If we're going to keep the lights on as a culture and advance the cause of human flourishing, there's one overriding common sense reality so basic that everyone should know it and that we must never forget. A quote-unquote free lunch is never free. Someone always pays. This is true in every part of the created order and is, in fact, a reality so basic and profound that even Almighty God submits himself to it. Two places in the scriptures, Leviticus 17.11 and Hebrews 9.22, we're told, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Someone pays. There is no capital L life without death. The blood of innocent animals, the old covenant sacrificial system, although acceptable as a foreshadowing of the blood of Jesus, was insufficient for the permanent forgiveness of sin because, as we're told in Hebrews 10.4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, only to temporarily cover them. This no-free-lunch reality is so basic, it was even embedded in the beauty and innocence of the Garden of Eden pull a vegetable out of the ground or pluck a piece of fruit from a tree and it dies, but it nourishes us. There is no free lunch. Someone always pays. There is no life without death. And I believe it's to constantly remind us of this reality that the Lord invites us to feast regularly at his table. And when we truly contemplate what communion models for us, it helps give the incarnation of Jesus meaning. Someone, someone with flesh and blood just like us, had to die. As Galatians 4, 4, and 5 says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, one, born of a woman, and two, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And this is critical because only a human can meet those two criteria. Born of a woman, born under the law. The word incarnation refers to the infleshing of the eternal Son of God, Jesus putting on flesh and blood and becoming fully human. The noun incarnation derives from a Latin verb incarno, meaning to make into flesh, or in the passive, to be made flesh. In Latin languages, especially in Spanish, when you have chili with meat, it's called chili con carne. Incarnation. Infleshing. The doctrine of the incarnation claims that the, sent, that, that the eternal second person of the Trinity took on humanity in the person of Jesus. 
Probably the best way to remember the key aspects of the incarnation is the summary statement we find in John 1.14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Those four words, the word became flesh, sum up the doctrine of the incarnation very succinctly. The word refers to the eternal divine son who was in the beginning God and who himself was God. We're told in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. From eternity past until he took on humanity, the son of God existed in perfect love, joy, and harmony in the fellowship of the Trinity. Like the Father and the Spirit, he was spirit and had no material substance. But at the incarnation, the eternal word became man by taking on human nature in addition to his divine nature. Theologians call this the hypostatic union, a term used to describe how God the Son took on a human nature, yet remained fully God at the same time. Jesus always had been God, but at the incarnation, Jesus also became a human being. The addition of human nature to divine nature is Jesus, the God-man, one person, fully God and fully human. Jesus, two, two natures are inseparable. He is today and will forever be fully divine and fully human, even as he intercedes for us before the Father. He's doing that in a human body. Jesus's humanity and divinity aren't mixed, but rather united without any loss of separate identity. Um, if, if you want to go into this in great detail, the Athanasian Creed does this, one of the three ecumenical creeds that the Anglican Church is taught from. Jesus sometimes operated within the limitations of humanity. At other times, within the power of divinity. And in both, Jesus' actions were from his one person. It's essential to the incarnation to recognize that divinity and humanity are not mutually exclusive. The Son of God didn't have to choose between one being or being the other. He could be both at the same time while remaining the eternal word. He became flesh. And flesh isn't merely a reference to a human body, but the entirety of what it means to be human. Body, mind, emotions, and will. In the incarnation, everything proper to humanity was united to the Son of God. He didn't only become like man, he actually became truly and fully human. Like us in every sense, except our sin. Hebrews 2.17 says, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And in Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. In the incarnation, everything proper 
to humanity was united in the Son of God. He didn't only become like man, he became truly and fully human while remaining truly and fully God. And he became man in the words of the Nicene Creed for us and for our salvation. The eternal word became frail human flesh and blood to save us from our sin and to free us to worship and marvel at and, and enjoy the unique union of divinity and humanity in his one spectacular person. Jesus chose to become flesh and blood, to become incarnate and offer himself as a sacrifice, to die on our behalf, because if things were truly just, it would be us. Thanks be to God for this indescribable gift. And it's in the mystery of the Eucharist, through the elements of bread and wine, that we meet the same self-sacrificing Jesus and receive and are nourished by that gift as we are in no other way. But that's what the sacraments Communion and baptism do. They're outward and physical signs of inward and spiritual realities. Though mysterious to us, something is actually happening in them. Something that God does. And so, speaking of sacraments, here we are again. Every year, on the Sunday following Epiphany, which was Friday... The capital C Church commemorates and contemplates the baptism of our Lord by John in the Jordan River. Because it also helps frame for us the meaning of the Incarnation. In fact, for Christians in the early centuries of the Church, as well as for those of us today who embrace and believe that same faith, neither Jesus' baptism nor our own makes much sense if not considered in light of the Incarnation. The fullest description of baptism of Jesus of the baptism of Jesus in the Gospels is given in Matthew 3. In verse 6, just before the passage Steve read today, Matthew tells us that people were coming to John to be baptized, confessing their sins. He then quotes John the Baptist in verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance. Do you hear the order of those words? Matthew is making plain that the purpose of John's baptism is to provide an occasion for the Jewish people to confess their sins and actually be restored in those waters. It wasn't performative. It wasn't symbolic. Something was actually happening, something that God was doing. And because of that, I believe Matthew wants us to pause and reflect on how God first created, then physically entered into and radically transformed those waters. To do that, I believe he also wants us to contemplate what it means for God to have become human. Because to begin to understand baptism... We must understand the reality, the physicality of being human and what it means for us to say that God saved us by becoming like us. Building on scripture, the apostles and Nicene creeds make clear that to be human is to be physical, to be tangible, to have senses and to, to be sensed. We're not wispy souls trapped temporarily in a body that's foreign to who we really are. That's the claim of the Gnostics, whether ancient or modern. 
Gnosticism, or gnosis is a Greek word that means knowledge or to know. Gnosticism refers to, and by the way, this is a massive oversimplification for the sake of brevity, so I hope you'll give me just a modicum of grace. But it refers to a movement generally united in the teaching that ultimate salvation came only through a kind of higher knowledge possessed only by a few, and that human beings are essentially divine souls trapped in an evil, material world. It's a vilification and rejection of both the human body and of the physical world, which is anti-biblical. It asserts duality in material, evil, versus spiritual, good, and in body, evil, versus soul, good. Gnostics believed that matter was inherently evil and spirit was inherently good. As a result of this presuppositions, Gnostics believed that the things done with the body have no real consequence on the soul because real life exists in the spiritual or the mind. And even though Gnostic sects have faded or faded in the early church, Gnostic ideas have an unbelievably long shelf life and are deeply and dangerously embedded in Western cultures today. We see in this assumption by many that one's body, we see this in the assumption that by many that one's body, how it is bio biologically sexed and what one does with it is subordinate to what one imagines or thinks themselves to be, who one really is. Modern practical Gnostics are Cartesian brains on a stick in the extreme, on a slightly more mundane but still dangerous day-to-day -day level. We can see much of this idiotic duality rooted in our culture today just by people that swear they have a public life and a private life. No, you only really have one life. And who you are in private is who you are. Even and maybe especially within the church, the modern church, this is a problem, a practical duality between the spiritual and the physical, the spiritual being higher. In the ancient world, Gnostics didn't believe in the humanity of Jesus. Since he was good, obviously, he could not have come in literal physical form because physicality is evil. Further, they generally asserted that he hadn't died on the cross, but rather that while his spirit had united with him in his baptism, it had made a kind of daring last-minute escape just prior to what would have been the moment of his death. Lucky for him. Thus, his death was largely just a symbolic act, a living example of compassion and self-sacrifice. Again, a popular progressive theological view today, but absolutely not biblical. Gnosticism was perhaps the most dangerous heresy that threatened the early church, and much of the Nicene Creed was forged to address it at the cost of lives, by the way, for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven, was incarnate from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, was made man, 
for our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate and suffered death and was buried. Those of us who don't cross our fingers when we say the creeds understand that we are spiritual, but also understand that our physicality is integral to who we are. <laughs> Sorry, it's impossible for me to compete with cuteness. <laughs> I know. I just love that guy. <laughs> so charming. Those of us who don't cross our fingers when we say the creeds understand that we are spiritual, but also understand that our physicality is integral to who we are. We live out our current existence entirely within both the possibilities and the frailties of our physical bodies. And when we look forward to the coming kingdom of God, we look forward to our bodies being resurrected and made entirely new. Our hope is not to go to heaven, sit on a cloud, play a harp, and live out eternity as a disembodied soul. Because that would actually mean hoping to become less than what we are. Something less than what God created us to be. Instead, we hope for the redemption and renewal of all creation, including the renewal of our bodies and our spirits. Our hope is finally to become fully and completely human. And if you want to just have your imagination enlarged in this, read The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. It is mind-bending. And because we're simultaneously incorporeal, which is spiritual, and corporeal, physical, no more one than the other, we are both, our salvation is worked out through both spiritual and physical means. In the case of baptism, the physical part is water being poured on our heads or being immersed in it. The water plays a vital part in the story of God. Matthew really echoes Genesis when he describes Jesus' baptism in the waters of the Jordan River. Genesis tells us that in the beginning, the Spirit hovered over the waters. The Word of God was present from the beginning and, and created the world, and that what the Word created was good and God was well pleased. Matthew tells us that at the baptism of Jesus, the Spirit of God once again hovers over the waters. Once again, God speaks. And once again, God is well pleased, by the way, with Jesus in a physical body. Genesis describes God bringing order to chaos through his spoken word. Matthew describes bringing, taming the chaos of our sin through the word made flesh. Genesis describes the abundant possibilities of God's created work. Matthew describes the restoration of those possibilities through God's entering into creation in order to redeem it. The parallels are just stunning. And they link baptism to God's acts in creation. In fact, there's amazing alignment with the sacraments of communion and baptism and the meta-narrative of the scriptures, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration, or more colloquially, Ought, is, can, and will. I don't know if you remember a few months ago, the bicycles describing the narrative of scripture. In ought, say, let's take communion, for example. 
just a simple phrase, take and eat. In ought, in creation, one of God's very first commands to humanity was to take and eat the abundance of the earth. In is, in an act of rebellion, they took and ate the one thing they were told not to. In can, according to Jesus in John 6, take and eat is the solution. And in will, the first event after resurrection and judgment is a feast, taking and eating of the abundance of the new earth. And in baptism, ought, the water is good and it's essential for the creation of life, is. In the fall, water becomes the sign of God's judgment in the flood. In can, at the baptism of Jesus, Jesus physically enters those waters, foreshadowing his physical death and resurrection, and water itself is redeemed and is now essential for eternal life. And in will, <laughs> Revelation 22, the river of life flowing from the throne of God and the lamb feeding the tree of life and fueling the healing of the nations. Water gives witness to God's love for his people as we're washed clean of the sins that lead to darkness and death. And in the waters of baptism, we foreshadow our own deaths and emerge victorious in resurrection. Obviously, water by itself doesn't accomplish any of this. In his catechism, Martin Luther attributed the power of baptism to the word of God in and with the water. Because the power of baptism isn't found in the water of loan, but in the logos, the logos, the very word of God in and with the water. And that's exactly what Matthew is describing. By entering this water, Jesus didn't seek his own repentance because Jesus had nothing of which to repent. What Jesus did instead was to offer himself as the answer to John's call for repentance and restoration. So in his baptism, Jesus showed what it means for the word of God to become incarnate, to take on flesh at a point in time and accomplish the amazing acts of salvation of the eternal God. When Jesus entered the Jordan, he redeemed water to its proper place and made even more profound the necessity of water for life. The water of baptism is now essential for eternal life. Jesus' baptism also vividly foreshadows what it would take to save fallen humanity. Theologians from the earliest days have looked at Jesus' baptism as the precursor to his crucifixion, often describing the crucifixion as the ultimate baptism. And in Luke 12 and Mark 10, Jesus has this very conversation with his disciples, asking them if they're ready to receive the baptism that he will receive. So what? What does this mean for us practically today? Let me give you at least one way that I can think of. And it might be a little ham-handed, so forgive me for that. St. Paul, particularly in 1 Corinthians 15, saw Jesus as the new Adam, arguing that in order to rescue humanity, it was absolutely necessary for him to experience the fullness of what it means to be human, to be both incorporeal and corporeal, spiritual and physical. 
And it's the unity of these two essential parts of our natures that also makes us fully human. And that, at the very least, ought to be great news for our neighbors. Redeemer's shared vision is to proclaim and promote the gospel, giving ever more time, talent, and treasure to seeking the flourishing of our neighbors evangelistically, vocationally, and in substantive and sustained good works. This comes from Jeremiah 29.7, Seek the flourishing of the city to which I have sent you and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its flourishing, you will find your flourishing. In other words, we flourish only when our neighbors do. And have you ever noticed the unity of spiritual and physical in our shared vision? To proclaim is to speak the words of life. To promote is to put our hands to it, to make it physical. I mean, we want everyone to come to faith in Jesus, but if we do not also act, we proclaim but do not incarnate the good news, as Jesus did, we're actually being less human than God intends us to be. We have two immediate opportunities before us at Redeemer. One is going to happen right after this service, second Sunday sandwiches. Just a good way to dip your toe in the water. We make 100 lunches for Lighthouse Shelter together and really actually have a good time doing it. Another is an opportunity that's just come up in the last couple of days uh, with winter relief. I don't know if you're aware that Annapolis has a, has a strong program uh, of winter relief where uh, those who are uh, sleeping rough, um, sleeping outside homeless, uh, are given the opportunity to be inside, to shower, to be fed, to, to do those things in local churches. Cape um, United Methodist Church uh, has invited us to be part of winter relief with them January 16th through the 23rd. Patrick is working on exactly what that will be, and we're going to be in touch with you this week. But I, I really hope you will join us wholeheartedly as we pursue our vision in 2023 and live out the implications of our own baptisms, what it means to be fully human and what it means to invite our neighbors to that same fullness of life. But that means getting physical. And I believe that's one of the most powerful lessons the baptism of our Lord teaches us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.